0: Would you believe that there was some difficulty recording this episode because of a current of electricity? We apologize for the hum, but enjoy the episode.
1: Undercurrent. Undercurrent. Undercurrent.
0: This is Undercurrent, the podcast. I'm Wasir.
2: And I'm Adriana.
0: And we are here today with Jennifer Slavin Harris, whose show, The Missing Piece, is opening at Undercurrent on November 21st and runs until December 28th. The opening is on November 21st from 6 to 9 at Undercurrent, that's 70 John Street in Brooklyn. And then, in support of the show, there'll be a concert on the 23rd, which is a Saturday at 7 p.m., again at Undercurrent, 70 John Street in Brooklyn. Which will be featuring Scott Rudd, a lo fi musician, and Dallas Noyokaitis Noyo and Panayotis Mavridis, who will be doing a improvisational uh, soundscape work, uh, half with percussion and half with hand-built stringed instruments. Suggested donation of $8. So, back to Jennifer Slavin Harris. Uh, Again, the show is called The Missing Piece and opens on the 21st. So, Adriana, tell me about this show. Like, What's it like?
2: Right. So, it's a solo show of assemblage um, with a lot of found and salvaged, upcycled material. Um, And it's it's so poignant because although the works are made of very hardened uh, industrial materials, there's a softness and a a vulnerability to them that is really beautiful to see.
0: What do you think that vulnerability comes from?
2: I think it comes from taking these fragments of a whole that have histories carried along with them that she's taking and kind of conforming to her own aesthetics, which is a really interesting way of, you know, elevating these thrown away materials.
0: So these things have a story and now they have a new story and there's there's a vulner- vulnerability in the sense that they have a past that maybe is best left forgotten or that maybe can somehow be peeled away with problems.
2: Exactly. And I love how you said peeled away because I think, I mean, it's always, you see these buildings that are going up around this neighborhood and they're in a vulnerable state because you see the scaffolding of them and the inner workings. And I think that's something that...
0: You see their guts. Exactly. It's echoed in Jennifer's work. Yeah. One thing that you said during the during our conversation is that houses look finished And now that they're coming down or getting washed away because of uh, storms and things like that, you see them broken down into their component parts and then you can see that they're fragile objects that are relying on a bunch of glue and nails and that kind of stuff to hold them together. Exactly. Great. Uh, What else can you tell me about the show?
2: Um, I'd say that there's some nods to Art Pavara and assemblage artists such as Rauschenberg, but I think her show is very singular in that the materials she's collecting are very recognizable as being part of this tumultuous time we're living in where everything is being deconstructed and built up again in such a fast-moving pace, which I don't think was quite the case, you know, 50-odd years ago. So I think it's very now.
0: As comes up during the conversation, there's a very strong relationship between this work and these questions of uh, global warming and increased turbulence in the world, both between in the way that nature can be turbulent uh, very slowly or all at once, but also in the way that humans can be or tend to be turbulent or or uh, scarring mm. very quickly and, and in straight lines, whereas mm. nature is a little bit more fragmented. Yes. Great. So again, that show is uh, opens on November 21st at 6 p.m. at 70 John Street in Brooklyn. So tell me, what else have you been up to lately?
2: I saw a great show by the Material Girls at 550 Gallery in Long Island City. I just wanted to talk about them it's a great small gallery as we are that constantly puts out engaging and conceptually interesting shows
0: can you tell me more about the show
2: yeah so the material girls are an old women collective um, and they really transformed the space using using a variety of materials to create this like a site-specific installation um, and I don't know what else to say about it. Then you have to go see it yourself.
0: We'll include the link and more information in the show notes for for this episode. My thing was uh, so back in October, ninety nine percent invisible. I don't know if you know this podcast. It's a podcast about the unnoticed design of everyday life. So the host uh, Roman Mars created uh, an audio guide to the imperfections of Frank Lloyd Wright's perfect masterpiece, which is to say the Guggenheim. So it's a uh, a whole episode of the show that is a, like you put it on and then go to the Guggenheim. So wow. Yeah, so the putting it on part is easy. It's the going to the Guggenheim part where I'm like... Ay, ay, ay.
2: <laughs> You'll have to kind of use your mind's eye if you don't want to venture down there. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to... Uh, well, the the online version on the website has pictures, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I can imagine what it's like in there. So
2: That's a fabulous idea for a podcast, having kind of visual you know, cues to go along with it. That's great.
0: Precisely, and especially since it's designed as an episode that it's not an architecture guide of the museum because Roman is looking at the weird things that he notices, I think. Yeah. So it's more like, oh, these are things that didn't work. <laughs> so that's, that's
2: amazing. Yeah. I think we all want to hear about that stuff when we go into these grand buildings, you know, what was the artist, you know, not giving as much attention to or perhaps slipped through the cracks when making these... You know institutions.
0: Yeah, and it, with with that museum, you know, there's like Wright wasn't on site. You know, there was basically another person that that oversaw a lot of it, and then uh, you know, apparently a lot of a lot of changes were made. Wow. Because of uh, the unlivability of of his vision. Wow. So yeah, so that's I I still don't know what to do with this podcast because I don't I don't want to mark it as read or mark it as listened to. <laughs> Be, but I also know I'm not going to the Guggenheim anytime <laughs> soon, so um, I'm imagining talking about it now is like putting a bookmark of it, and so in the future I'll be like, oh yeah, I talked about that. Maybe I should go to the Guggenheim someday and do this sort of thing. So.
2: Well, I'm definitely going to try to listen to it, too. I don't know if I'll get to the Guggenheim either, but that sounds really, really interesting.
0: Okay. Well, you know, it's it's not like neither of us lives in New York and it's difficult <laughs> to get to Guggenheim. But I'm just lazy. Yeah, same. Um, somehow we made this episode, though, so... Without further ado, we hope you join us on Thursday, November 21st at 6 p.m. at 70 John Street for the Jennifer Slavin Harris opening, The Missing Piece.
2: It'll really be a blast, guys. It, it should down. be.
0: And then the concert on the 23rd, the art will still be up. So it's, it's the same but different because there'll be music and uh, an $8 donation at the door to sponsor Undercurrent's Future Work. Thank you very much, guys. Enjoy the show. Yes, thank you. So now our conversation with Jennifer.
2: Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for coming over to Undercurrent to uh, talk with us today. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start off by talking about your work in relation to the materiality of it. Um, you, Your work speaks to this generosity of the utility of materials, so the idea of picking up fragments of a one's whole object to reconstruct perhaps or give it new life. When did this practice start for you?
1: Well, the practice started really during a time when I was... Uh, exploring photography, I needed to take, you know, 10 rolls of film a week, but I was also working full time. So I would take these uh, expeditions on my bicycle or whatnot into the outskirts of Brooklyn, places that were more industrial um, facility laden and um, just off the beaten path. And I would try to find material to take, you know, a documentary series and in doing that i would see all of these materials that were abandoned and just accumulating in these empty lots and you know occasionally you see something that has like a i don't know like a figurative like a doll or a, a abandoned stuffed animal things like that that would be great for photos and then you know but i also started seeing all these textures in a new way through a camera lens and it wasn't particularly um obsessed at that point at all with collecting any of these things but I did start to take tokens from these expeditions and like put them in my jacket or on my bike whatever a plastic bag or whatever and you know I didn't I had no idea it was going to end up like this but I did I do specifically remember starting to see these things and being like what can I do with these
2: that's so interesting in relation to where the show is in Dumbo um, and then in Brooklyn as a whole being this place which is constantly being rejuvenated by almost also gentrification and movements of people that create these uh, ghost houses or big warehouse buildings that have been abandoned.
1: Yeah, I mean, and uh, particularly along the waterfronts, like whether it's here or in Williamsburg where I've been living, you know, the things that accumulate along the waterfronts, uh, you know, artists being the people that typically gentrify these industrial areas so they can have space to expand their creative ideas, you know, get pushed out further and further and further, but there's certain communities like Dumbo, for example. You can't, you know, that the neighborhood of creativity has certainly expanded. But also, it was the same thing back in when I first moved to New York. You know, it was bla- basically a place for film production studios to have their trucks idling while they loaded out for sets. And you know, so this neighborhood still has that kind of, I don't know, history in its landscape from St. Ann's Warehouse and like. Um, just having the power plant across the street from here, I find oddly charming. <laughs> yeah. It's
2: a definitely interesting building. You feel to like look you're out. on the edge of the world. Like exactly. I like this
1: apocalyptic kind of feeling.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, and with the utilization of found and salvaged materials, the majority of which have already lived their life, there comes this, uh, these ideas of reconstruction, architecture, and perhaps the fast moving industrialization of cities. Do you think that directly informs your work? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's a, it's a, we feed each other. It feeds The process feeds the materials and the materials feed the process, if that makes sense. Like, I, I mean, as when I was a painter, I I really didn't know what to paint, um, I, I, of course, as a student, I did a lot of uh, referential, you know, like I I figured out what I liked aesthetics of and what I didn't. But with this stuff, it's kind of like you either take it or not take it or leave it. And then you decide, like, for me, it's like I'm almost painting with these objects, because it's all about the colors and the textures creating that new thing. There would be really boring if they were shiny and new, you know, so I think the byproducts of industrial like development and I don't know all of these mysterious things that are happening and that get somehow uh, thrown out onto the streets through waste collection. However, they get to be where they are, or things that aren't people don't dispose of properly. If they didn't have the traffic running over them, and if they didn't get kicked around and have, they, they just wouldn't have any charm, you know. So I I do think there's a difference between how and where you find materials and how long you let them sit. And kind of, I've le- I've definitely seen things in the street and been like, I'm not ready to pick that up yet because it's it looks too new, you know. <laughs> that's great. Yeah,
2: I love that term, take it or leave it. Yeah, that's such a you know, that's such a good way of explaining your process.
0: I th- can I add to that that the um, the sort of industrialization? If if you could talk a little bit about this, because the works that are in this show are wood tends to be the the most apparent material, and as a result, there's this kind of pastoral quality to them by which i mean it's it it feels a little bit like like you're in a cabin and so it's um almost like a degrowth type of salvage like a like a all the metal you can't use anymore because it's been irradiated or something <laughs> and, but you do have the wood and the wood you can still use because it has that organic warmth and it has that kind of um it it has that life to it and so so there's a well, has a history right right right, yeah and because I know you have you have a couple works like there's one work of a crushed can in it, and so so metal does play obviously a role, um, but it's also it's a challenge to a, to an industrial to a sense of an industry and to a sense of everything being mass-produced and so on, because this is wood. It's not quite the same
1: thing. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's been an interesting thing about hanging this show because over the years, I've definitely gravitated towards being obsessed with different genres of material. So, uh, you know, back in the day when I was really literally scavenging for pieces, you know, because I wanted to explore this new medium of assemblage and recycled upcycling, all that, I literally take whatever I found on the streets. But as I started having other engagements in buildings where there's multiple studios and things or finding I started finding the carpenters uh, the woodworking shops down the road and go digging through their dumpsters so I started seeking out as opposed to just happenstancing across materials and looking all the time because that's what's also just the weirdest thing I'm like never not looking anymore and I just like I was like is this ever going to go away like Am I ever gonna not be like riding my bike and like like, slamming the brakes on and being like, I have to pick up this like wet tar lid and like now I'm gonna be late because I have tar on my, you know? It's like crazy um, how the obsession like keeps growing, but the dumpsters of the wood shops have been a really good friend because A, it's a much more luxurious source of material. Things are, have a lot of weird history, like the slashes and the gashes and the, the screw holes and all the rejected parts from this perfect piece that these people are trying to make that's cabinetry or headboard or who knows you know but I love how the juxtaposition now of those materials going from the grungy weathered fragmented stuff to like these more structurally um, and then the, the, they're painterly in themselves like the textures of the wood it's like I have to pick the side that has the more detail or, or history or um, paint splatters or whatever it is it's like it's it's a much more luxurious material for me I, I love wood it's grounding for me to work with it's really fun I love screw, you know metals like you got to use weird glue and it's rusty and you got to figure out if you, how much do you want it to rust like wood's like good to go you know
2: <laughs> yeah and this almost scavenging gesture that your work possesses suggests someone with a necessity to create someone gathering from the world to make new realities come to life I Enjoy particularly your non-hierarchical mode of the of the choosing of materials, um, as Rauschenberg says. There's no such thing as better material.
1: Yeah, I love that.
2: <laughs> we would love to hear a little bit more about your practice. Like, does it start with a concept, or does it come more organically from picking and choosing these?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the one of the easiest things that's always been able to try to explain to people when people are like, "When do you do this?" or like, "How how do you do this?" is it really is the piece that gives me the excitement. I'm in a playpen, and I'm just like, there's a new toy, and it's like, where is it? Where am I going to leave it? And where am I going to see if it works? And sometimes I move it around and around the whole studio to see, like, oh, could it go here? Because it it's the, that's the thing. Like, there's no, I do have like stock reserves of materials that I, I dig into at times, but it's really all about the new the new piece. And that's not to say that. I, I go When I don't find something new, I'm still working in my studio, but, like, a new piece is, like, the impetus to go in there and see what's happening. Like, where can this... What can I do today? You know, because it gives you all the excitement to think, like, this could be something that literally changes the... Like, moves something to this next level of finalization, you know?
0: Do you feel like that it's never off then? You're always in the process of about to create art?
1: Yeah, I'm definitely not one of those people that um, has to say like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to make art from, you know, six to 10. Like for me, like I, I'll i go into my studio any time of day and move things around. It's literally just a meditative thing for me at this point. I'm never stressed. I never go to work on art. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm sure I've gone into my studio to decompress after a day of being on computer or like doing things out of my house. But Mostly I go in there when I'm, you know, 90% when I go in there, I'm, like, in a good mood, and I stay, and if I'm not having fun, I don't do it. And that doesn't mean I don't search or struggle or be like, oh, like, what do I do, <sighs> just, or how can I get this, to you know, but, like, the making of the stuff is, like, totally, it's just, like, super, there's no, there's no uh, struggle in the making, it's the putting the stuff together that can be really intimidating and being, like, okay, do I have the energy for this how am I going to get this to stick together? And do I feel like clamping and screwing? and you know, so that's like it's just like literally almost like two practices. There's the practice of like playing and and collaging and layering. and and then there's a process of, okay, like, if you want this to look like this, how are you going to do it? You know, and that's like where the it's not so much is' not as much fun. But yes, it's very satisfying to get to put that, you know, four inch screw through like, five pieces of wood and it doesn't splinter and break you know like there's those victories that make it worth the effort but it's 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 like almost like another because otherwise I'm just like oh it looks great but like you can't pick it up because everything will fall on the floor
2: (laughs) going back to what you said earlier I think that's such a good point to make because as artists we kind of hold ourselves to these sometimes impossible standards of going in and almost as if you're working a nine to five having to put that time in and I was talking to a friend of mine recently about how important it is to know when to step back and take time away from it. And it's always better to spend two good hours in the studio versus six unproductive ones or ones that you don't really feel like making or creating.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. I mean, I've also had the luxury again of... I call it a luxury... To, I, I My f- experience as an artist has been luxurious in the sense that I don't... I've never imposed deadlines on myself. I've never had anyone you know giving me timelines and I don't know I don't know what that's like like for me this whole evolution of, of being an artist is something that like I don't know how to not do what I do and if it if I'm not doing it in my studio I'm doing it in the kitchen or I'm doing it with musicians like everything's collage to me like everything is like bringing things together to make them better or make them look better or sound better or feel better you know like whether it's you know, pieces of like found objects or, you know, making a soup or whatever. I just, I just feel like it's about the joy for me. I've never, it's never been about pressure or, and I, I think that that creates a different urgency, like for me, that wouldn't work with my process anyway, because I don't always have what I need to finish the piece. Like if I, if someone would like, oh, the, this is off to a great start, like when are you going to finish it? I don't know, because I, it, I know it's that thing about, you know, the missing piece, but it's really true. I, I, sometimes pieces literally lie for five to, t- it could be five years. I've had pieces I've been working on for 10 years and then other pieces I literally finish in like 20 minutes and they're put together and they're ready. You know? So it's, if I had urgency, if I had like this, like connection to finishing pieces, I would be not, it wouldn't be meditative process anymore. Cause I'd be like stressed out about why can't I finish this? Like, where is that? You know, what do I need? Like, So it's an interesting relationship to have to an ongoing
0: process, you know. I think that comes out just in how you've been talking about your work so far, because you talk about going into the studio and you didn't say things like, and I paint or anything like that. The verb you were using for the most part was move around within the studio what happens is things are moved around and shuffled and like I'm almost imagining like playing Mancala or something like that (laughs) like just just these just these little glass beads bouncing around and then but that that has its kind of meditative effect you know of something like a rock garden too like where you just move the stuff around and see how it works and yeah it's like a vibe
1: like feeling the vibration like whether it's color texture whatever like and letting it letting it be you yeah. know not being like sometimes like ooh ooh you know like no that that but yeah and then and then I have to see how it looks the next day in daylight for example versus you know nighttime or
0: it's only later that you start using words like clamp or screw or or things that are more associated with an active productive transforming of the actual of the object in and of itself as opposed to what it is because of its relationships with the things around it and where you've placed it in your studio.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm really excited about the object itself and its identity, and uh, you can tell where it's come from or broken off from, and, you know, like, just... And then other times, the object itself is just... It's just a scrap or a color or a texture that doesn't mean anything, but it is when, you know, those pieces start to communicate that's where, that's the play, that's the the fun, that's the magic, that's, like, how excited, you know, that's when I get, like, I feel excited all over again, because I'm never working with the same material twice, I'm not, like, opening up that, you know, cerulean blue again, you know, like, it's, like, every piece is, is totally unique, so I'm never going to repeat the same process again in, in my work, and that's really exciting, it's, like, It's like, you know, free jazz or like, you know, it's just like that feeling of not knowing what's going to happen and how things are going to evolve and not caring, really. You know, that this lack of preciousness to it almost, even though I find the uniqueness of the pieces precious within themselves, like I love how unique my materials are and that nobody else sees what I see. And that's a whole nother conversation.
0: (laughs) Well, and then in the show, the way that the show has been hung, both Affirms and challenges this kind of thing because there's the big wall where the pieces are very clearly in conversation with each other, and then there are on the side walls there are horizontal pieces that are the there's two pieces per wall, and then there's another wall where it's a bunch of more or less square pieces, all at the at eye level if you're the right height, <laughs> um, and so the show itself gives these and then there's other other pieces elsewhere. But the point is that the show gives you different ways of interacting with the pieces either one at a time or as a whole. So
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Although it's been really challenging to let go of what I envisioned, um, I'm really excited about that expanse of appreciation or or just to have these things featured in a way that puts weight in areas or... um, aspects of the work that I you know again I don't find precious but like now that they're hung this way there's things that look dainty and precious and they're not you know it's, and then other things that look way more, you know, one of my friends came in and said, it looks like, a, you know, like a circus, you know, and I was like, that's a compliment. Like, I like the fact that like it's it just it there's movement and life to these things as they co- as they communicate together. And then there's this starkness and almost like wit or humor to these other pieces getting so much uh, attention and singularity and in the conformity and the way they're hung and such.
0: But circus works great cuz that's like animal crackers or something where you have sense of a, a train where you have all these cars that all have to fit together and the wheels have to be the same width apart and they all they all have to fit these kinds of things. But one car is the elephant car, one car is the monkey car, one car is the <laughs> tiger car and etc. so there's it's it's both at once in that way. To- so yeah. I like that. It's a circus is very good. <laughs>
1: A carnival.
2: <laughs> um, I love your nods to the art. uh movement's tendencies to work with what was around them and delineate art making from traditional forms. And yet I get the sense that there is a more painterly effect that happens with your pieces. They layer and some even have natural mark making. For example, the rust that corrodes the metal bits. That almost allows the work to straddle sculpture and painting, which is, I think you were getting into that before, talking about this love of layering imagery and creating that almost painterly effect. Um, do you
1: find yourself mining those two worlds? Sculpture would be the last thing that I ever meant to make. First of all, just living in New York City, it's just not a smart smart move <laughs> to like <laughs> get into that. Um, I did what I loved about painting was I never ever created smooth paintings. I would I was the kind of painter that just put layers and layers, and you could like cut yourself on the surfaces of my paintings. And I was—it was kind of like, what am I working so hard for? It was kind of depressing. Even though, again, it was meditative, it was just like a darkness to my work. I didn't, again, know what to represent. I didn't know how to be an abstract artist. But I was always told I was really good with composition and color. So I always had, and that's why I decided maybe photography is a good thing for me—color and composition. I'll be a photographer. And I, I always had—I've always had to make this. What started to happen with this—this this medium is that the textures were already there and there were some colors that were already there. So my earliest works, I mean, I also took a huge delve into paper collage and so I would start, so I was whittling out of painting and doing paper and paint together. And then again, then I started putting paper into these wood and metal pieces with paint. And so this layover, it still continues. Like I, I use Uh, Paper collage. I still use paint because sometimes I use paint to mimic the natural decay of what's a piece I've already collected, or to play off of that, or create a complementary relationship color wise, or whatever it is. I've always I always use paint. My paint is like pretty like it's like crusty and weird. And I like almost to have it be an effort. Like I don't, it's like not smooth and luxurious. And like, like my mat, my mediums are are that way. They need to be that way. But I have this like really weird relationship to painting that I, I still like, I cut up so many paintings when I graduated college. And again, I wasn't an art major. So, but I still was, I stayed an extra year in college to take painting. And I cut them. I cut most of them up and started putting those into my collages and things like that. But the the sculptural element started to come into play when I realized that first I couldn't. I didn't want to have all these flat, kind of weird, flimsy pieces of art that weren't quite, you know, portfolio worthy because they'd have some stuff three dimensional on it. As I found uh, more materials that I could grow the the surface with. It because things started to become more sculptural, you know, with the addition of the like more multimedia things like plastics and the metals, and like it just was moving in that direction. But I always wanted to make things that hang on the wall. I was never, I I have a few sculptures, and I probably. A couple dozen sculptural things in my studio, but that's like almost like my grounds for amusement. It's almost like my inspiration. Like I have these little figures and things that are all, you know, the dolphins and the yogi bear and the uh, the cat, the do- the poodle jumping out of the hoop. Like I have all these characters in my studio that entertain me. Polar bears pandas like all they're cheering of, you on they are it's like no because it's lonely process too <laughs> like you gotta have a sense of humor about do, working with these materials it's not like I mean it is it that you're getting you know splinters it's sharp it's dirty it's you know and sometimes you want to keep all that stuff intact and then other times and, and you're excited about exactly that the shards of glass that are literally like I'm like what happened oh why am I bleeding you know (laughs) it's like but it's also yeah you got to have a sense of humor and having all these like sculptural things that kind of never quite make it into a piece a finished piece or something it's kind of like this backdrop I have for my studio like the playpen kind of vibe where I just feel like it's innocent nobody's judging anything and this you know more playful yeah that's so nice yeah um, I found what you said about constructing your
2: pieces and your references to alchemy quite poignant. Um, the missing piece often awaits, which we've echoed throughout the interview. In your pieces that are constructed from these fragments of a whole, when do you call the work finished?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, even today, you know, I didn't find anything on my way here to add to the the, the show. <laughs> but I mean, a couple days ago, I did. I found a piece of a broken cone from the parking this, you know you know putting the the markation from the the streets and i like added that to a piece that you know has been done quote unquote like i don't think anything's done till it's out of my hands like seriously I'll i've broken i've and and i have resolution in my own mind for me it's when my eyes move without stopping in a way that's like why why did you do that you know like for me it has to be like a seamless movement of my eyes around a piece and when everything seems in harmony like i'll put at least put it up on the wall and even then it's still subjected to being altered but i'm not like my thing is is i'm not i don't care about finishing the pieces so much to me it's i've given up on being like i want to finish that when i was again when i was a painter I was like, you know, when, how, when am I going to finish this? But with this art form, it's amazing because the patience is built into the process. You know, I just like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's going to evolve as I find that, that half circle of wood that, you know, literally just makes something, it's like the punctuation. So it's like, I can tell when something's well on its way or working out the way, evolving in a way that I think is clever or 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 just fun or dynamic, but... Yeah, the punctuation it could take you know a really long time, and also a lot of times, for me, it's like someone just saying, "I love that." I'm like, "Great, it's yours," you know, (laughs) (laughs) like (laughs) it's done, take it. (laughs) That's great.
0: Does it matter that a piece is finished or not?
1: I mean, it does. I again, it's it's really more of it's like a feeling I get. It's like there's, it's literally like finishing a puzzle for me. So like sometimes I'm looking at pieces and they're missing if they're missing a corner, that's like not okay. You know, if they're missing a piece on the inside or something, it's not depressed. It's not like it's, it's not eating away at me. Some pieces though, I just can't even tell you, I'll put like dozens of pieces onto them. And then I have to glue those dozens of pieces onto them. And then I have to pick it up like fifteen times before nothing falls off of it. and it's like amazing, and it's five years later. you know, and and that's like I don't want to I don't want to start projects like that as as often as I make things that have a little bit more. Uh, I, I like I like to do work things like I don't like to be labor things. that's that's what I've learned through this process of my earlier works being crazily layered. You know, it's all about like you know showing my proving to myself something almost like you know i'm going to obscure this so much and nobody's going to be tell what any of these pieces are and it's going to be so weird and so cool and now it's like i the minimalism and i don't know whether it's through my um i don't know part of me thinks it's part of my yoga practice <laughs> because i've become just a generally like more i think productive and calmer and um, just more focused in general. I'm able to have more focus on when I'm working on the art, I'm working on my art, and and this is what's happening. It's not like, again, it's not like I don't have to prove anything to myself anymore about my process itself because it was so new in the beginning that I was, like, overdoing it. So things get gaudy, and I used to think, oh, this is punk rock or this is, like, heavy metal, like, you know, but now I... I just feel like it's more nuanced it's a little simpler less is more like all these things i'm trying to experience as i get more experience with the medium itself
0: you know you're not creating one one work and everything has to get poured into it in the sense that it's uh you're allowed the space to breathe and to think of your production as something that happens over a period of time where some things work well, some things don't. I mean, in, in writing, we talk about this as having to kill your babies. Um, <laughs> and because, you know, you're just like, oh, but that's that's such a brilliant allusion to blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, well, but you have an 800-word count limit. You know, it's, a, <laughs> like it's, time to, it's time to start baby killing, basically. So
1: No, it's interesting, though, because, you know, I do, I do think that there's no way without going through like s- making so many mistakes and thinking that uh, you know having the luxury again to ironically work with materials that are not precious it gives you a lot of freedom to make mistakes and to explore take chances and see if something works as though you're not like ruining that you know, five hundred dollar canvas, or like, you know, I mean, it's you know, we I do things where I'm printing on canvas for people, like clients, and it's five hundred dollars per piece of linen, and you're like, I, we can't. This the that's exactly the opposite of the, how I want to feel when I'm making my art. I don't want to feel any like stress or like I just want to feel like it's all about the excitement of what's what could happen, what what's going to happen, and how it's not, you know, it's not like everything. Is gonna be like everything's gonna work out the way it's supposed to, and if it falls off the wall and breaks, you know, then that's okay too. It's because it'll become something else, you know. That's <laughs> so great. It's, it's, it, it, that's happened a lot.
2: <laughs> it's a very Buddhist approach to making. That's great. Yeah, it's L- not less yeah. stress. <laughs>
1: um,
2: I was struck by something you said out there while you were still fiddling around with the installation of it. Uh, you showed us a piece where you had a piece of. Um, tar that you had ripped off the street and I thought that was so interesting in a way of like taking a cast of the city in a way like a one that you didn't orchestrate yourself but you kind of take from the city it almost has a sense of a temporality in your work so you can like have portraits of the city at different times of change um I think that's really beautiful
1: yeah I mean it's been really interesting to feel like I, I I allude to all these pieces as urban artifacts Because I I know it's weird, but I feel like I'm like a modern day folk artist in a sense because I am picking up the traces of everything that people have abandoned and left behind. And they don't, whether most of the time it's voluntary. I can tell when I find somebody's really nice earring or something, I'm like, well, I don't know where you are, but I'm going to do something nice with your earring. You know, like just jewelry is a hard one. I feel bad when people lose that stuff. But I mean, most of the stuff I pick up is often unidentifiable, but um, you know, just taking resurrecting these things and and having the aesthetic that they all when they come together collectively, they are a portrait of Brooklyn mainly. Uh, you know, it's it's crazy what we what people left leave behind, and all the, also another huge source of my work has been people getting kicked out of studios, and you know, and I lived in loft buildings for years. Where every month there were just piles of people's stuff, like abandoned, because that was that was that, like their time was up and they don't have anywhere to move it, they don't have money for a storage unit. So, you know, I would find the weird, and they're all artists too. So I feel like I've also have this amazing collection or um, body of work that's been from a lot of other artists. Like I've used a lot of other artists' rejected paintings. You know, wood panelings, um, you know, slides, photographs, like all kinds of things from from other artists that have left her, you know, left her studios or or apartments behind and stuff. It's like an art graveyard. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you you know, my studio Zom- definitely zombie has, art. <laughs> well, we were. I was thinking about calling the show "Optimistic apocalyptic <laughs> because it's a very optimistic take on all this abandoned stuff. But then you know, it was it, was, it didn't it didn't pass.
0: Yeah, that's, <laughs> that sounds like a Geno Monet song or something <laughs> like that.
1: Oh no, optimistic post-apocalyptic because wow. it's that gives it that post. Yeah,
0: yeah. We're all accelerationists now. <laughs> So you mentioned this about Brooklyn just in passing. Now, is there how to put this? Is there something resembling like a geographic limit on where you pick stuff up? Because now I'm trying to imagine what it would mean to have a practice of like my art is entirely built out of stuff I've found on a on one specific block. Mm.
1: I mean, I definitely used to gravitate towards certain train tracks and parts of the highway, uh, like the BQE and waterfront and stuff like that. You can take the artist out of New York City, but you can't take... Wait. Wherever I go, I'm looking for stuff. Basically, I brought suitcases. I I had to buy an extra suitcase when I went to Jamaica because I found a beach that was literally covered with plastic. and It was beautiful. I actually want to do some of those photos one day. But I just could not believe it because there is no garbage and they don't have recycling there. And the Technicolor landscape, so I literally had to buy a suitcase for that. And then I don't know how the airport let me take it all. They didn't really, I I got through security. It it wasn't a problem. But I've also been, I've gone on marshland. Like there's a, I went sailing in Narragansett Bay. And the whole whole crew was uh, helping me collect all the, pick up all the garbage out of the marshlands. And that was for an environmental, like that had, a, that felt really good. I, we did feel like we we're not only, but we also found beautiful things. Like we felt like we were doing something I would love for, like, I always pick up garbage when I go hiking or anything like that, that that just seems so foreign. I, it's the aesthetic that we're used to in New York city is just unbelievable. But then you go to a place that doesn't have recycling and such. And you think, Oh my God, like, You know, and then even the recycling is an illusion here because like upstate facilities are in upstate New York are not processing things the way that we think they're being processed. And that's a whole nother. But so my thing is, is like everywhere I go, I always collect stuff on everywhere I go. But uh, there's a limit. And there's also a lot. lot, Most of the places I go are, are not. Like they're not like New York City, and there's not garbage everywhere. <laughs> I mean, there's a few exceptions to, you know, certain, you know, like or I'll pick things up and and have a part of just part of the process of feeling like I'm doing something positive for the environment. But like, you know, I, I couldn't imagine being uh, like I, I, I know certain um, pieces have a lot softer feel. like when things are destroyed by nature, there's a way different effect on its structural uh, and, and, and its aesthetic. On its structural, like things here are smashed and gashed and tor- more tortured. Whereas in, you know, in nature, it's like you can imagine waves like breaking something down over and over again, which could be really violent also. But there's like, you know, all the things that I collect from nature, um, places where nature is the predominant destructive force have a much different feel, you know, and I like that
0: yeah time is time is destructive in a different way. Like that's why sea glass is mm. not painful. <laughs> this i'm I'm imagining this trip to Narragansett Bay and I'm trying to imagine this sort of thing like, yeah, you know, I will uh, I'll help you clean the marshes and then I'll also get some get some future stuff for my further art practice. So there's the way you're talking about it strikes me because it's unclear whether it's an accident. <laughs> that your artistic practice also aligns with a certain kind of care about the the state of the environment or if it's like an outgrowth
1: it's I mean I've 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 done volunteer work for the environment since I was in high school like I did you know we did projects where we would go clean up Camden so I did have a um, I, I did have a, a, a an interest in you know not just like doing something that's pro-environment, it's, you know, I think the most, the thing that we should be most political about, if if, if everything else could be kind of put aside, you know, human lives and the environment, um, pretty important. But um, I don't know, I, I, I just, the aesthetic I became used to going to these neighborhoods when I was growing up, you know, in between Philadelphia and my, you know, perfect little suburban town of Cherry Hill, there's like, urban wasteland and you know like burned out houses and trash everywhere i just i couldn't believe it i just remember being shocked and this project was called the heart of camden and we'd spend our saturday mornings going with like the school government we'd take these trips and clean up all the garbage and i was like that was great you know um so i mean it's been an it's been kind of ingrained in my mind to always be thinking like why do people disrespect the planet like this like I mean, I see people like throw, you know, plastic cups like was, you know, out the window out of their car. And I'm just like, I, I don't know. It's really, it can be really hard like living uh, in neighborhoods or, or around neighborhoods where there's just no respect for the landscape. And it's really shocking at times. But, you know, having the perspective I have, which is A, either cleaning, actually cleaning things up. Um, picking things up. I know I'm not saving the planet by making my art in any means, but I do feel pretty good about, I mean, my source materials. Like, you know, I have a hard time with shiny, plastic, digital. It's just not my my thing. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't continue to make all that stuff, but, like, we have plenty of materials to be using that could be more creatively – upcycled and things like that and and that's again that's like a huge challenge I think we face in this world that's obsessed with making new things but like it's not really something I've never really been interested in um exploring and this all it all kind of makes sense whether it's from how I feel about the way people treat their environment and then I'm saying urban environment natural it, it looks a little crazier like when I went hiking in Colorado yeah we picked up all the plastic stuff we found along the way. But it was like one little plastic bag in like a six hour hike. Here, if you did that, I'd be, I'd have like a sled. Like, I don't even know what kind of vehicle I'd need to pick up everything. And then a week well, the later, it would, would all be back. Yeah, the street, you know. The,
0: well, the, you would pick up a sled, <laughs> and that would be your mode of conveyance, <laughs> the, the trash itself.
2: I'm also thinking about this push and pull between kind of um, the natural order of things and the artificial materials that you collect. I mean, it brings to mind all the natural disasters that happen in our country, you know, Hurricane Katrina, and you see these um, these footage, you know, videos online um, of big rushes of water carrying these fragments of homes. And you don't really see what our houses and what the things we use are made up of unless they're scattered into bits floating down the river. Yeah. So I think it's really, it's beautiful that you take these items and elevate them and put them on the wall so that we can clearly see where each thing is coming from, you know? I mean, when you're walking down the street, not everyone Do is you? Noticing. Can you,
1: though? That's what I'm i I mean, and <laughs> some some
2: of them you can't, but some of them you have the glimmer of, of a thing that you recognize, which is really nice.
1: Well, that's what I like about the push and pull of something like the installation... That, that is up now is something seem really obvious and then other things seem more mystified in, in a sense like what, what could that have been from? And I'm like, Oh, well that's a, uh, what are they called? Saltine lid. And you know, that's a Papa's, you know, Frita's wrapper, and the Coke, you know, like I just know, I know what everything is. And sometimes I don't, when I pick it up, know exactly what it came from, but it's something I do always think about. And then, yeah, it's just all the, where does all the, where do all these things go? I mean, there's such, like, I want to, I do want to do something more structural in, I'm hoping in the next phase, like, it's, you know, cause it is a bit limiting. I, I, I had two studios at one point, which allowed me to really explore my practice and have space to make some stuff that's bigger, but I've never had a space. Where I can like build a structure out of all and like literally conjoin all these pieces, maybe even all the rejects, all the punk rock, all the the heavy metal stuff that I, I I know it doesn't really speak to my it it served my process and led to where I am now, but it's not like my preferred aesthetic. And sometimes I'm just like, God, I can't believe I made that. you know, like what was I thinking? But, you know, I, it would be fun to make something structural that actually, had a could be a place for you know people to actually sit and take their time and look at at the interconnectivity and all the imagery and the narratives that are playing off of each other and not just the materials themselves because I did really come from a place of like wanting to have a narrative but now I think that people it's more exciting for people to create their own narrative and tell me what they see and that's the joy I get out of like working with such ambiguous or co- combining such bizarre materials and textures and all these things for other people to you know, have their imaginations prompted. It's, not, it's cer- I'm certainly not telling anyone what to look at when they come in, I'm, but I'm always like, what's your favorite piece? And what's your most unfavorite piece?
0: <laughs> the idea of taking all these old pieces where you say it's not part of your aesthetic anymore and then building a structure out of it that, that provides some kind of... This makes me think of a kind of pull between form and content in a way that it's... Uh, this is not your aesthetic, but it's still material that can be de in some way to provide mm. some other kind of use value to humans or something like that. In the sense of like, here's all this, all this art anymore that I don't particularly like, but we could melt it all down and build a bus shelter or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, like I something mean, needs to happen. Yeah. I, I don't know about the bus shelter, but I, no, I, no, I do. But now I'm actually thinking, what about a bus shelter? Like, yeah. you know, it could be anything. Those are, and, and that is, I don't know if you've ever had to wait for a bus that's not coming. Yes. Without a shelter. Yes. <laughs> I,
0: I lived in Chicago for many years before, Ooh. before we had <laughs> bus tracker apps. So There's no bus my,
1: shelters there.
0: <laughs> it depends on, no, let's say no. But, but yeah, because then, no, this is something I've never thought of, so maybe this isn't the best way to best place to start thinking about it. But this idea of de-aestheticization along the lines of something like deindustrialization, uh decommodification, mm. um, decapitalization, uh that's that's tied in with, with the salvage and with the upcycling and all this kind of stuff. So is Ooh, I that, just got the chills. <laughs> yeah, so is that you know, like I, I wonder slash worry, because what it, what would it mean to de-aestheticize something anyway? But that's Maybe maybe we we close off on that or something. So
1: no, I I mean th- that's the thing. That's I think the challenge with this work in general is to find a way to not inundate s- someone with like it, like it, it's like the things start to almost melt meld together, melt together in a way when they're when you see them all at once. I think that's a huge thing that is part of my. Typical reality working in my home, like you know, it's the way the 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 proximity of all the work on the walls is so. It's almost like what you're you're saying in the sense, like it's you know d de- you can't see anything because there's it's so there's so much, and I think that would be interesting to do again with the, you know the the things that not like they're not a part of me still like the stuff I've made it's all part of who you know who I've become as an artist and whether it's things I've learned to love or hate about myself and in my aesthetic choices I'm just excited to you know think about things in in a different sense of space and 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 relation as opposed to what I'm used to or even joking around about this idea of like you know piling everything together and burning it. All these things are like, I, I'm you know, if I wasn't having this opportunity, I wouldn't even have the space to think about what's next and what to do with what's no longer seemingly relevant in my practice. So I just like, you know, you're getting my gears turning a little bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's uh, this This is not a true story, but it, is, it has been told that Mikhail Bakhtin during the Second World War like things were so bad in the Soviet Union that he took a manuscript and used it as uh, rolling paper for, for his cigarettes. If this, To the degree to which the story is at all possibly true, he didn't do that because he was converting, he was in the process of de-aestheticizing his work and turning it into something very functional that he could smoke. But to the degree that he did that, the story is that he did it because he was convinced that there was a copy of the manuscript with the publisher. And, and so like, what w- might immediately seem like a story about the fact that y- the words you write are actually just on paper and are actually something that can burn and provide fuel and have these other, other lives, the reason he could do that is because he had a reproducible form of, of uh, expression And it was already reproduced. Hmm. Problem is the publishing house got like bombed or something, so we we don't have those books anymore. But but yeah, so there's so there's I mean we don't have to cry too much, but but that's not available to you, like you. Yeah, and once your stuff goes away, it's gone.
1: It's yeah, and that's okay. Yeah, like I mean, it's uh, if I can inspire people to just how they look at things or look, even like look around. And I mean, I can't tell you how many people collect pieces for me now. It's unbelievable. Like, oh my God, I found this amazing piece. Oh my God, I have this piece. Oh, I forgot to bring you that piece I found for you. Like everybody, whether it varies in shapes and sizes and, you know, medium, like I'm amazed that like people of all ages, you know, like I have people in their 70s, people in their teens, like they're I they're they they they, they want to support this thing that I'm doing and it's so bizarre to me that you know, I can somebody can look down and see some random thing on the street and be like, "Oh, I have to get that for Jennifer."
0: But it also means the work is legible uh, to a lot of people and that they they understand how how you make the stuff and they understand, and it has an, enough of an impact on them that they think about it into the future. And
1: yeah, it's. I'm humbled. I, I'm always endeared, I should say. Like when somebody is like, "Look what I found for you," or "Look what I got." And it's and you how know, it's yeah,
2: pretty how many priceless. how many artists can say that they actively, you know, engage that their community around this like purpose that is feels so natural. I mean, it almost forays into you know social practice.
1: I would love for you know to have. I would love to for that to be another offspring of any success I have in, in my own you know work. I would love to be able to do workshops with kids. I've done workshops with kids in the past, and you know everybody's seen like the you know aluminum can flowers on the fencing and things like but that's wonderful. Like if you know, and I know that that's becoming more popular and not so weird to do these found object workshops. Uh, I know Dinah's doing one today with her eight to 10 year olds. Like it's an intergenerational thing. It doesn't have to be with dangerous materials, but it can be with like, Hey, like what can you make? What, how can you create something new and beautiful from something that, you know, it's not like we have to save every piece of garbage from going to a wasteland or whatnot but it is nice to think we i do think it's really important to consider especially in places where there are no recycling solutions and stuff i've thought a lot about that like i i've i I think every year about returning to that place in jamaica and doing a project like just cleaning that beach up and and doing projects with kids or making something structural like for real it's 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 a you know a really great alternative to ignorance or just you know allowing something to just build up without any solution you know but that's you know it's a bit of dreaming
0: all right so on that unexpectedly positive (laughs) note (laughs) i guess we can finish unexpected Um, i don't get it well well no but it was already expected because of the uh optimistic post-apocalyptic um (laughs) So, so yeah. So, uh, thank you very much, Jennifer, for uh, for being a part of part of the show and 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 for the show, and wish you a all the success with uh, with things slowly flowing your way. Thank you so much, both of you. Thanks, Thanks for talking to us. That was our conversation with Jennifer Slavin Harris. Her show, The Missing Piece, opens on November 21st and runs until December 28th at Undercurrent. The opening will be from 6 to 9, and we hope to see you there. Similarly, on Saturday, the 23rd, Scott Rudd and Dallas Noyó and Panayotis Mavridas will be performing a concert in support of the show. The suggested donation for that is $8, and it's at 7 p.m. on Saturday, also at Undercurrent. You can find out about the concert, about the show, and see previous episodes of this podcast by going to undercurrent70.org. That's undercurrent70.org. And if you like the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe on iTunes or however you use your podcasts. So on behalf of Adriana, I'm Wasir, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And we're going to close out with more music from Dalos Noyokaitis Noyo and Panayotis Mavridis. Enjoy.